Out there, Morris Bishtinsky speaking here. Welcome to episode 160 of Love That Album Podcast. This show is proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. Go to pantheonpodcasts.com and find out any of the other magnificent shows that I'm allowed to play in the same sandbox as. I've invited a fellow co-host. This fellow is not here to discuss an album with me or to be the subject of a grilling. He is helping me to grill our guest. He is our John Hyatt expert, no longer Voldemort because we got rid of that cursed episode 100. Welcome back to the show, Jeff Smith. Hey, Morris. Good to be here. Wonderful to have you back. And I'm really thinking that the next show that we do has to be nothing to do with Bruce Springsteen and has to be nothing to do with John Hyatt. I think we're getting you typecast. So I haven't given up on the hope of maybe convincing you one day to give another shot to Suzanne Vega, but I won't push my luck. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find our uh, common point. If I, if I could do it without listening to any of her. Yeah. Uh, no, can't no. do that. No, no Fred, you've got to listen. I think all the Suzanne Vega fans have just tuned right out. I'll probably be editing this bit out. You're here to join me to speak to the author of, well, it's not a new book anymore. It's been out for a year. You're here to join me to speak to the author, Michael Elliott. He put out a year ago his first book, although he's been a radio announcer and he's been writing lots of articles for a wide range of physical print and online magazines. Michael has released a book called Have a Little Faith about the life of John Hyatt. Now, now, obviously, the two of us are big John Hyatt fans and go back to episode 100 if you want to hear the whole story about why episode two didn't work out. Back at episode 100, we discussed Bring the Family. I guess you could debate whether or not it's the pinnacle of his output, but certainly it's the turning point in his output. It was a slow turning from the inside out. I wish I hadn't said that. But anyway, so yeah, Michael's written a really fascinating book about John Hyatt. So Jeff and I are going to have a conversation with him and just get him to elaborate on some things in the book and get him to talk to us about all things John Hyatt and even a little bit about his own beginnings as a music fan. That should be fascinating. So we'll be back after Joanne gives you the contact details and enjoy our discussion with Michael Elliott. And then we'll be back at the end of the show to talk about what's going to be happening next month. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 160. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. When the road gets dark And you can no longer see Just let my love throw a spark 
Welcome back to episode 160 of the Love That Album podcast, and I'm very excited to have my guest host, Jeff Smith, join me, and we're going to be speaking with author, article writer for magazines such as No Depression and websites such as Pop Matters, author of his first book, Mr. Michael Elliott. Welcome to the show, sir. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on, and we are here more specifically to speak about your new biography on John Hyatt, songwriter who Jeff and I are huge fans of, and your book is called Appropriately Enough, Have a Little Faith. Look forward to uh, having this discussion today about your time with John, about the book, and about all sorts of things, Hyatt. So congratulations on the release. I saw that you posted uh, in the last week or so that it's a year now since the book was first published. How's the reception been in general over the last year? How have the sales been and reception to the book? The reception has been remarkable. The sales have really been well. I've been very impressed and I've been very surprised at the outpouring of raves that it's been getting. Of course, you're going to have a few folks that really don't like anything, but the positives have really outweighed the negatives. And I think I only had one bad review out of the entire little cycle it did, you know, and it wasn't really bad. It was just pointing out some things that could have been better. And hey, I'll take that because I I love constructive criticism, but I'll take those odds any day. So I'm very happy with the reception. Before we get into the nitty gritty of John Hyatt and of your book, I think probably just so the, the listeners get a bit of an idea where you're coming from, I just sort of wanted to bring up, the, there's an interesting thing that you've gone and mentioned, I think in the book, where you talk a little bit about yourself and your own musical origins. And one side of the family was into classical music and on the other side of the family was heavily into country music. Where did you find yourself on that spectrum as you started to become a music listener? Did you want to actively rebel at what had come before you from both sides of the family? No, I've never done that. I've never understood that line of thinking. I know it's very popular. I know people did it as, as, as teenagers and, and adolescents and stuff, but I've never tried to pigeonhole anything. To me, there's two types of music, good and bad. So I've never really categorized music. As a kid, I never really was taught to categorize music. And like you said in the question, it was all around me in every type of music. So to me, country artists like Charlie Pride was just as important or relevant as a band like Led Zeppelin. And so it was just different sonics, different sounds. So that was exciting. You know, I didn't want to hear, as Hyatt's saying, one more heartfelt steel guitar. I understand sometimes the comfort people find in listening to just one type of music. But on the other hand, I can't, for the life of me, figure out why they would want to hear just one type of music for the rest of their life. Music is too exciting. It's too diverse to just be bogged down on one style. It's like eating uh, macaroni and cheese for the rest of your life. You know, you got to have some diversity in your diet to keep it exciting. Plus, you know, you'll die from carbs. So (laughs) (laughs) you want to keep it exciting. You want to have a variety of music in your daily listening habits. So just today I had, I just said, listen to records all the time, even in the background. And I had a modern jazz quartet, um, sextet. And uh, after that, I followed it up with Molly Hatchet. So (laughs) that's diverse. That's range. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for pointing out the uh, introduction. It was I don't know. It was my first book. So I thought I'd go a little different route and and, and say, well, the world has never heard of me up to now. <laughs> so I thought I'd give a little background on myself in the introduction. And, you know, some people have found that informative. Other people found it. Uh, I think one reviewer said that was self-indulgent. And I thought, well, yeah. 
<laughs> sure. But, you know, it was just an introduction. And that's what it is. Introduced me. Personally, I found that a really refreshing twist on how a lot of these musical biographies are written. I thought, well, okay, what's the person's connection to this music? And if it's a chapter or a forward, I think it's completely appropriate. And I really enjoyed sort of getting that perspective. So given that you said in the book that you have gone and written for many years for No Depression, which was like the old country Bible in the 90s and websites like Pop Matters. How do you make the jump from being interviewer, journalist to an author? Uh, well, I was, mainly was in radio. I was a radio guy, a DJ, and I got into radio management and, and operations manager for up to six stations oversaw them before I retired from that. And then, and I would always write and I always wrote reviews and did interviews on radios with people and I did interviews in print. But I looked into the 33 and a third book series which uh, is just little, I don't know if you know, but they're little yes. pocket, almost pocket-sized books, yeah. And they talk about a specific album. And so I thought, well, Bring the Family to Me has always been a very pivotal album in my life. And I was astonished that it was not on the 33 and a third book list. So I sent in a proposal for that. They didn't accept it. So I put so much work into it. I thought, well, I'm, you know, might as well just pitch it around to other people. So Chicago Review Press was the third publishing house that I sent it to. And I looked at all the books I've been reading lately who published them. And I love the Robert Johnson Up Jump the Devil book where Bruce Conforth and Gail Dean Wardlow and Chicago Review Press did it. And I also saw where they had done the paperback version of Stanley Booth's uh, Rolling Stones book and also uh, another one of his books. So I thought it was, uh, well, let me try those guys because if they like this stuff, they would probably not mind a Hyatt book. They got back with me like almost immediately within a few minutes and said, well, how about sending us a whole proposal? We'll take a look at it. And so I did. And I still sent them just an album overview. You could take Bring the Family and write an entire book about it. The details heading up to it and the band. You know, I was thinking about, oh, I'll just write a little backstory on each of the band members because they each deserve their own book, you know, which Niccolo has his already, you know, with Will Birch. So I could do this. And then they said, well, we want you to do a full biography with John Hyatt. And I thought, well, okay, sure. <laughs> and then after I talked to him on the phone, I hung up and said, okay, well, I guess I better do this. So I guess I better get in contact with Hyatt. <laughs> the journey started there. And then the more people I talked to, the more doors opened, you know. So eventually I got a, a whole bunch of people, just dozens of folks just stepped up, including Hyatt himself. And, and everybody was just as gracious and giving as they could be for this project, which I'm eternally grateful for everybody that participated. And to this day, I don't think there's still a 33 and a third book on Bring the Family, is there? No, no, it's not, you know. <laughs> if there ever is, I'm going to say, oh, really? Now? <laughs> Let's go to Memphis in the meantime, baby oh, Memphis in the meantime, girl I need a little shot of that rhythm, baby Mix up with these country blues I want to take in these old cowboy boots For some fine Italian shoes Must be difficult going through all the, the red tape and all the Keepers and gatekeepers, and before you actually get to talk to the one person that can make or break the book for you. When you finally did, I mean, in other interviews, Hyatt himself has talked about how he's not easy to get to know. Um, do you find him difficult to get to know, or did, did he seem comfortable talking about his various past lives? I'll tell you, the thing that probably was strongly in my advantage was the fact that, and it's 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 terrible that it happened this way, but 
When I finally got in touch, Hyatt's manager actually reached out to me. And it was because I had been talking to several people. I'd gotten Roseanne Cash by this point and Sonny Landreth and uh, quite a few other big names in his circle. And one Sunday morning, I get an email from uh, his manager and he says, I hear you're writing a book about my client. Tell me more. And this was eight o'clock my time, which would mean it was 7 a.m. Nashville time, which is where he was. And I thought, this man is making his money. He's earning. He's earning his money. <laughs> so I... uh sent back this heartfelt email about how much I had meant to me and over the years and all that and why I'm writing the book and who I've talked to already because that's what he wanted to know and which I think he already knew the answer to that which is why he emailed me so next thing I know is he's saying well let's set up a meeting with Hyatt can fly out here to Nashville or whatever in March of 2020 and I said okay well this was February and we all know what happened in March of 2020 the world shut down so that got put on the back burner the advantage I'm talking about is uh, Unfortunately, with it had to be COVID that did it, but everybody was landlocked. Everybody was grounded and nobody. Everybody could, laid low. Yeah, everybody laid low. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so they had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And so they said, why not? I guess uh, <laughs> I'm just saying everybody wanted to talk because there was nothing else to do, I suppose. But I got to interview John on several occasions over the phone and the only downside to all this was I didn't get to talk with anybody in person. Everybody I talked to, because it was done all through COVID, everybody I talked to was virtually through Zoom or phone, but it all worked out. John was just as, to answer your question, he was very giving. He started off a little hesitant. The more he talked, the more he opened up, which I found in the past, you just let somebody talk. And the next thing you know, they just, the more they talk, the more they'll just open up. And he was that way. And I think it shocked me. I didn't think he was going to tell me the things he told me. The things he told me was he had never shared before in an interview. And I think it was the fact that he felt it was time. You know, he's just turned 70. And uh, I think he just decided it was time to just open up and let it go. And I didn't know this at the time, but he was also writing for a new album. He was he, he and Jerry Douglas were recording Leftover Feelings at this time. And I think all that was just inspiring him to talk about his life. I had the good fortune to be in the right place at the right time for that, I guess. There's details that were pretty shocking in the first half of the book. I mean, pretty much up to bring the family, his life is fairly chaotic. Uh, mm -hmm. And the details about the familial abuse was pretty shocking. And, and really, to your credit, Michael, the book is written in such a way that it's, well, this happened. We're not scandalizing it. It's not tabloid fodder. It's just this was something that happened in his life. And that's something that I really, really liked about the layout of your book. Did John feel comfortable about talking about this? I mean, you've gone and said that once he got to know you, he was able to talk, but did he ever say something like, look, I'm a bit uncomfortable about this, but I'll tell it to you any way you decide. What happened? He never said anything was off limits. As a matter of fact, there was something he told me that I even left out of the book because I thought it went a little too far. He named a couple of names that I left out of the book. He didn't mean it by any malice. He was just thinking, well, it doesn't matter now because enough time has passed. But I thought, yeah, don't want to venture into that, you know. <laughs> so I used my editorial discretion and backed off a little bit after I talked to my editor about it. They agreed. So that's how open he was. That's the only reason I'm sharing that. But he was very giving and very open and very willing to talk about everything we discussed. Now, I will say at the end of the journey, when I had finished the manuscript, I was about to send it off to the publisher and his manager emailed me and he said, hey, when you before you send off the manuscript, John would like to 
to have a look at it. And he made certain to point out that it's not to change anything. It's just to look it over for accuracy. So it's not to like edit. But at the same time, when you see an email like that, you go, oh no, all of this work. Because I put everything in there he talked about, except for those couple of things. And so I emailed him and, and I said, it was a Thursday afternoon. So they use the old trick of, okay, but can I have this back by Sunday? Because I'm going to, it's going to got to be turned in by Monday morning. You know, I'm not saying that that was the case, but I'm just saying that <laughs> I gave him that deadline because I, I didn't want him to hold. It was bad enough that he was going to be holding it over the weekend, but I thought maybe he'll read it quickly. But <laughs> Sunday afternoon came and, you know, I'm sweating through this whole thing because this could be the whole deal. He could just say, we don't want to participate because I'd heard tales about this type of thing before, you know, by this very manager that he would just cut it off. Sure enough, Sunday afternoon came, my wife was sitting there with me and she, and, and I saw my little phone light up. It was an email and she said, do you want me to read it? And I said, yes. And his manager is very curt and very to the point. He never, uh, is not one to be, he's not very gregarious. He's like three or four words and that's it. But she picked it up and it said, book's good to go. And oh, so, wow. <laughs> so with those four words, you know, it basically made sure everything worked out, you know, it just, I was like, wow. It was just the most relief I've ever felt, I believe. Must have been a huge weight off the shoulders thinking, oh, God, it's finally <laughs> going to go, going to get to go ahead. Morris talked about the chaotic aspect of John Hyatt's life before Bring the Family. And I can't help but line up the idea of part of what you might have done through with him in all the opening up might have been like a kind of a fifth step. People who speak that language will, will know what I mean, but a bit about the kind of the recovery process and, and really rounding all that up and just getting stuff out there. It did seem to have that almost flavor to it. And certainly some of the language he's, he's used himself. Was that something you were conscious of hearing or did he make mention of it? We've never really talked about the specifics of recovery in those ways, but I did recognize the language and I could tell that he had been working through this stuff for years and that he understood how to frame it. I felt very privileged and honored to, that he he shared that journey with me through those words and those terms. When he talked about his abuse, the way he framed it was, it sounded like he had made his mind up that this, he had accepted the way it was. And so, you know, there's a way of, after you've said things through and got it off your chest, you can, you have a, a bit more freedom and confidence in how to, how to present it. And that's the way it came off to me when he was talking to me about it. Yeah, that's really cool process. She turned me out now. I'm sinking. I'm just so easily led when a little head does the thinking. I'm talking Let's talk a little bit about the music. You mentioned in the book that he did quite a few tours with Joe Ely, Guy Clark, and La Love It. And I hadn't known about those tours until maybe only a few months ago. I was speaking with another author, Tamara Saviano, uh, who'd also yeah. made a film about Guy Clark. 
I'm not familiar enough with the music of Joe Ely, but certainly the other three use either sober consideration of the things in life that they value or very humorous observation. Not necessarily in the same way maybe that Ladden Wainwright does it because that's out-and-out comedy, but they use subtle forms of comedy. And I just wanted to get your perspective as a fan of all of these gents, I presume, where you stand in how John uses humour. Do you think that that's a part of what appeals to you? Some of the songs I'm thinking of where there's some level of humour, uh, uh, perfectly good guitar, I killed an ant with my guitar, little head, old days even to an extent, uh, mm-hmm. maybe baby say you do, or solar sex panel. How much do you think that having spoken with John, do you think that using humour in his uh, songwriting is just something that he feels very strongly about? Well, it's life, isn't it? It's like we we have serious moments and we have funny moments. And I think that's what appeals to me about John's music is the fact that he can use humour. It's not beating you over the head with it constantly like, well, we, like Weird Al Yankovic, you know, but it's not at the same time, it's not Harry Chapin, which is just constant dread or <laughs> he's got that balance that we have in life. We've got to laugh sometimes, we've got to cry sometimes, we've got to get angry sometimes. He, he uses that balance very well through his music. And sometimes even in one song, he might have a twist and a line that will throw you off and make you laugh when you don't think you should. I think that's a, a coping mechanism as well, as, as we probably all know, we, we can cope through humor. And and I think he just is, is brilliant at using that. Also, while I'm thinking about it, get yourself some Joe Ely, man. Get Grab his live album from Ryan. 1980, I believe, when he was opening with The Clash, uh, for The Clash. He's he's the, of the four of them, he's the rocker of the bunch. You know, mm-hmm. Well, John was too, but I mean, Ely's just out and out country rock, maybe even toward punk more than the rest of them. But uh, yeah, he's great. Yeah, live at Liberty Lunch, if you can find that. That's probably my favorite live album of his, and, and that's the best way to catch him is live. And, and as far as the rest of those guys on that tour, I spoke with Tamara. She gave me some words of encouragement early on. That was great. Uh, she she was, she was very gracious. Guy Clark is one of my all-time heroes. He and Law Lovett, especially with John, you're right, they all use humor in very similar ways, very dry as well. But, you know, I believe that's that's very necessary in life, in music as well. That's the way I like my music. I don't like it too serious, and I don't like it all laughs. It's got to reflect what's going on in the world. There are so many songwriters out there, though, who will do one way or the other, or they're completely angry at the world. I like it when you go from a tear in the beer to having a chuckle. That's right. Hank Williams knew how to do it. I mean, he would be so lonesome he could cry, but at the same time, you're moving on over, you know, it's a uh, big dogs moving in. But yeah. <laughs> I'd probably say that the master of that sort of thing is Randy Newman because you're going from snark okay. to <laughs> absolute weepies. Absolutely, yes. I know that you said in your book that your entry point was bring the family. And actually, I'm not even sure, Jeff, I can't remember where you said what your entry point was. Where did you come in? My first listening to John Hyatt's music was uh, Slow Turning. It's been a slow turning. friend Dave Anderson who's been on the show he gave me a cassette tape 
just a blank cassette tape with, with uh, John Hyatt on one side and a Ry Cooder album that he, I was asking him for on the other. One night, late summer night, it's, you know, I thought I'll just stick that John Hyatt album on and have a listen. I put it on the headphones, lay down on the bed, started listening to it. And, you know, about two songs into this, I thought, whoa, this is some good stuff here. And this, I, I want to know more. And, you know, pre-internet, you can't just jump online and find out who John Hyatt is. I actually went through the first couple of months before I managed to track anything down, thinking that, that John Hyatt might have been an African-American. I thought he was, you know, because he just, the, the voice on that record sounded a bit like that. And when you, you know, you don't have any reference point, that's just how it sounded. But I did know that I uh, I wanted to hear more. And, uh, you know, Dave and I caught up and went on a, a John Hyatt expedition. And uh, before we knew it, we'd, uh, you know, I'd bought a CD player because cassettes were getting a bit out of, out of date. You know, that opened, opened a whole new range of music and just, you know, loved most of it from the word go. Some, well, they'll say doubtful moments on some of the early albums. But, you know, for the most part, there's a couple of real, two, three, four, maybe real, just great tracks on every album. For me, after you find a bit more of a committed direction, bring the family slow turning onwards, it just went from strength to strength and, you know, got better and better and stronger and stronger. I think as he got away from massive big production sounds and, you know, pared it back a bit, it just reflected his lyrics so cleanly. And it's hard to keep up with now. He seems to be turning out albums so quickly, you know, which is fantastic. Fantastic for us who like to listen to him. For all of us, it seems like the A&M years were the starting point. So I was telling Jeff before we started recording that I have a very good friend who made sure that there were two things that he thought I needed in my life and he made sure I had them. One was introducing me to the wire and the other thing he bought me in the 80s was this stolen moments uh, he said you need this cd in your life you want to appreciate great songwriting great lyrics incredible melodies wonderful arrangements and that album had it in spades it was then that i went back to bring the family and sort of went forward i but the thing i was sort of wanted to talk about i was in a band for a time with this fellow uh, a really really good songwriter who found out you know i liked hyatt and he said oh have you heard this and he played me Slugline. And I thought, oh, I got to confess, it it didn't really do it for me. Or maybe it was uh, warming up to the Ice Age. It was maybe both. Mm -hmm. But I thought, that's not the John Hyatt that I recognise. I confess, for years, I didn't sort of really go back through the whole back catalogue. But in prep for this, I went through everything. And I thought, well, sort of shame on me because I'm really enjoying hanging around the observatory and overcoats, which in their way don't point too differently to where he went once he sort of decided, I'm going to go in a more, for lack of a better expression, Americana position, but maybe with a different production with piano, some New Orleans feel, but hanging around the observatory doesn't sound too different to what he could have done post A&M. Listen to the earth she call your name
but it sounds like for you know quite a long time he was trying to find his way and that's something that we don't see a lot of I don't think in a lot of artists where they're brave enough to think no that didn't work right I'm going to try something else uh, they sort of think well I've got a small audience I don't want to piss them off but John Hyatt to his credit not only said no I'm not going to keep going but he found new record companies that were continually happy to bankroll them happy for a while anyway they were happy for a couple of hours <laughs> yeah <laughs> where do you I mean you spoke a lot about him going through the recording process on those albums but where do you stand Michael on those early albums do you feel like Jeff yeah there's you know three or four great songs on every album or has continual years of listening made you find no I wouldn't change a thing about any of them I think my journey was kind of like yours I started with first thing I heard from him was Snake Charmer single from 1985 uh, heard on radio and it was it was not on any album it was on a soundtrack album and the funny thing was I didn't know who it was then I just knew I really liked that voice and, and the production was horrible but it was 1985 everything sounded horrible uh, <laughs> in, 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 uh, in, in that realm you know unless you were college rock or something you know replacements are and they had their own thing but yeah as far as trying to chase that mainstream dream you had to sound all synthy and gated drums and everything and and just just you know plotting beats but at the same time i really liked that bluesy vocal he had but it wasn't until actually slow turning that was the first album i bought because they didn't have bring the family in the place where i was i'm sorry bring the family was the first i, I bought because slow turning wasn't available where i was looking because that's i had heard the title track on uh whatever it was cmt or tnn i think it was the national network at the time they were playing country videos he ended up on the country station well of course he stuck out like a sore thumb on the country video channel you know i don't know why they played him then because to me it was rock and roll but anyway i got that and then it wasn't until a, a couple of years later i think it i finally made the connection oh this is the guy that did snake charmer wow okay this sounds better yeah so going back to those early albums i had to re-familiarize myself with a lot of that too when i was writing the book because i'd heard all of them but i listened with fresh ears and i i understood the context in which they were recorded he was searching for his sound. He was searching for his craft. He was always a great writer, but I think he was spending too much time trying to chase a trend at, for a while. He wanted to sound like a Randy Newman. He wanted to sound maybe a little Leon Russell, a little Dr. John on, on that first album. There's there and, and overcoats. There's shades of that. Slugline, of course. Slugline and Two Bit Monster came along. He was trying to do the uh, trying to be an Elvis Costello or a, a Stiff Records type artist. You mentioned in the book. I didn't realize that. He become good friends with the the whole stiff crowd, I guess. But I mean, right. which I don't know why I wouldn't think that because of the Nick Lowe connection. I really started liking the Slugline and Two-Bit Monster era a lot better than I, than I originally did. 
throughout the process here. And I find the first two albums enjoyable in their own way. And I think the one I had the hardest time with, what well, all of a sudden as well, the, the first Gaffin album, it's the weirdest album in his discography because uh, Tony Visconti produced it. It's just all out synth pop, new wave, just really odd. It's got its charms as well. There's a few rock and roll songs in there. Dave Edmonds got a, a song out of it. Something happens. You know, he, he did a cover of that. But Warming Up to the Ice Age was one that is so disappointing to me. And and I never will understand. I even talked to, when I talked to Norbert Putnam, who is the producer of that, it makes no sense. And the hilarious part is when I talked to Putnam, he couldn't figure it out either. He was like, I don't know. I don't know what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it cocaine was involved a bit too much in that, but it's like nobody knows why they were doing that. And he had such good songs on there. You know, she said the same things to me. There's some really good cuts. But at the same time, When We Ran, that's a great ballad. But it's just that plodding metallic sheen all over it. And John's playing some nasty guitar, but it's done through such processing and distorted, weird mid-80s. And that slap bass, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> what is with that? So, yeah. But after that, you know, everything switched around. I'll tell you how odd it was. It came out after Riding with the King, which was like as close to Bring the Family as he ever got before he got to Bring the Family. So that makes it even weirder. I could see if Riding the King had to come out right before Bring the Family. But no, this this warming up to the Ice Age, which is where he hit bottom personally as well. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But he was not really present during those sessions, spiritually or mentally. So I think that has a lot to do with it. My look on all that is it was the early work he was, like you said, I think searching for his own particular idiom and a lot of his lyrics out of the sound of a, a voice on the outside trying to get in. Yeah. And then suddenly bringing family happens and he's on the inside and he's looking out and he's wondering, wow, how did we get here? And since then, he's been kind of making sense of that for us and facing up to the, all right, now I'm inside. There's a whole different set of bullshit going on, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bring the family is where he decided to. Yeah, exactly. You're right. He started looking inward all the the snark of looking out into the world, I wouldn't say, well, I don't want to compare it to Bob Dylan from, say, freewheeling to another side and bringing it all back where he started looking inward, you know. But at the same time, I think there's a little bit of that. He was looking with a critical eye out and a cynical eye out into the world. Then he decided after he cleaned up, you know, he's like, well, I'm a mess. Uh, maybe I should stop being so snarky and judgy to other people and look at me and, and investigate myself. And, and I think that's where his best music has come from since then. Would you say that it's a cathartic album for him? Oh, yes. Yeah. As it was for most anybody that's probably ever heard it and identified with it, uh, including yours truly. So, yeah, it was definitely a way for him to exercise his demons. He was celebrating his newfound sobriety at the same time he was dealing with the loss of his second wife with tip of my tongue, especially in Lipstick Sunset. You go through all the emotions through that album, you know, from joy to 
pain and and everything in between. What I'd like to do, I think I sent you an email suggesting that we might do this, is sort of go in the round and each talk for you know a minute or so about a couple of favorite Hyatt cuts and what they mean to you. This is a very um a very daunting task to try to narrow down just two, but yeah, I had to think about it. And I came up with Adios to California and Cry Love. Smoky room and the thin blue light. Her arms were pale as white, trying to outlast the night, howling at the moon, living in a canyon, hang down Hannah and whiskey gin, dirty jeans and mudslide hymns, and all began with some. Well, Adios California to me is probably, and it's just saying a lot, until his new album with the one about his brother. But I think Adios California is probably his most revealing, naked, autobiographical song because it deals with the death of Isabella, his second wife. And when I was talking with him, when he was recounting that era, that time, he brought up some things that he addresses in the song and he just fleshed them out a little bit. So the, the reading Mark Twain line... And the cigarette, the pack of cigarettes, which is an amazing line where I, I can't remember the exact line here. Let me, uh, cause I don't want to mess Two it cigarettes up. from the package gone. Yes. Thank you. You must've thought about it just that long. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so that's the stuff that makes songwriters legends. And it's just, it's, it's tough to hear that song without choking up and tip of my tongue is very similar. And the fact that it grabs your emotions like that, but this really, the, the way it's constructed and the way the words roll through his pain is uh and it's like it is like catharsis there's this is kind of like therapy it reads like that and it's where he's finally dealing with it explicitly and not in a metaphoric way or a symbolic way so that's what really uh, draws me to that every now and then i'll have a couple of these songs this one and, and cry love whenever they come on i have to stop what i'm doing and just listen to it until it's over you know And for Cry Love, it's the way that he is speaking to someone. It's got to be a, a woman, but I mean, he's speaking to someone about having to get over, you know, get over this person because they're no good for you. And it's a little different than, say, Old Habit Son, perfectly good guitar. He's talking about, I don't know if it's the same person or not, but he's talking about they're with a no good person. They're with a no good man and he they need to walk away from him, need to leave him. But I guess Old Habits are hard to break. On Cry Love, it's more of a victorious situation because this is probably the lady that has finally gone through with it and left the person. And it's just like an affirmation that you did the right thing and this is going to be okay. You might not feel that way right now, but in the end, the throwing up ashes on the floor, if this is a lesson in love, what's it for? The heart will remember the burning fire the next time you feel the flame of desire. So never mind the fact that this is hurting right now. It'll all be okay. You're going to meet somebody and it'll 
this whole thing will start over. As, as devastating as losing the what you thought was the love of your life, you're going to meet somebody and it's going to start all over and hopefully for better this time. So, and the arrangement of that song with, with Emmer Gluck on the, uh, David Emmer Gluck on the um, mandolin and the whole buildup of it where it builds up to the double time right when it gets to the victorious. It's like they've attained love again and they've just found a new, it's a victorious situation. So at the end of that, it's like a, a victory lap with that with the double time on it. So those are my choices. You mentioned in there that you thought that Adios to California was one of his most autobiographical songs. I know that there's a bunch of them that are, but did he ever indicate that Damn This Town was autobiographical? Uh, well, there, because there's a line in there about his brother. Yeah. He says uh, she doesn't even know want to know what her youngest boy did. And I was sort of thinking, has he swapped the ages to protect the guilty or protect the innocent? He didn't mention that being autobiographical, no. And I think what that is, is probably a, it's one of those where he took from his life, but just ambiguously, you know, I, I think that's a, a, a bit of that plus a little bit of fiction, just enough to keep you guessing. <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, it could be like a night the lights went out in Georgia situation, you know, <laughs> but the narrator is not to be trusted. The old <laughs> Unreliable. <argument>. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff? Yeah, like Michael said, it's really tough to pick just two from such an enormous body of work. And I guess it's like many artists, depends on the day. You know, I could pick it, you know, ask me again next week, I'll come up with two different ones um, for whatever reason. But the one that I do, if it comes on, I have to, like Michael said, stop and listen is Icy Blue Heart. Oh, yeah. Asking myself if I've got what it takes. Melt your icy blue Should I stop To turn what's Off the slow turning record I can never figure out what I think that song's about You know, I don't know if it's about him and how he how he has approached or his the character in the song has approached relationships and meeting people or if it's about him finally meeting his match in someone and being taught a lesson but i know it's just a, it's a good thinky song you know it just just makes me ponder and think about things and i love the range of the vocal in it there's points in there where he's got such a deep voice and then he does that sort of falsetto shrill thing which is it just fits that song so well it's a, again, a fairly simple song. If you read it at face value, it's just a simple song about meeting somebody thinking it might work and then going, you know what? Nah. It's, uh, you know, on that, on that, It might be on that kind of throwaway level. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, I, I, I agree with you. That is one, a powerful song because of its simplicity. And I think it just the, the naked emotion that runs through it. And of course, uh, I love the metaphor with the ice and the water and all that. I think it's just brilliant songwriting. It's brilliant country songwriting. That's, mm. uh, that's probably why Eminem Harris did it and did such a wonderful job with it. There's a friend of mine who is a huge fan of Alison Krauss. He's always like sending me songs. Have you heard this one? Have you heard this one? And like one of his favorite songs from Elson Krauss and Union Station is a song called Maybe. And that song is, you know, about woman talking about her regret. The relationship is broken up. Icy Blue Heart is about a relationship that never started, it seemed. But one thing that I was sort of thinking about, and this is probably more common in country songwriting than in a lot of rock songwriting, certainly maybe for, you know, people of Hyatt and Krauss's age. 
is life experience. My friend Dave had said, maybe is a real grown-up song. I mean, you know, we all sort of grew up in our teens listening to songs about love. Please love me. Otherwise, I'm going to be miserable without you. And Mm -hmm. the thing about maybe and Icy Blue Heart is it looks at relationship or a prospective relationship through the lens of experience. Even if you don't necessarily identify or have empathy for that situation, even if you haven't been through that situation, but you know someone who has, or it makes a whole lot more sense to you. And that's sort of, yeah, that's completely what I get through Icy Blue Heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, the only one I settled on was uh, Howling Down the Cumberland. Caught like a deer in my own headlights Yeah. For me, again, it's got that emotional part, that sort of longing missing, which runs through a lot of John's songs. But for me, it's just purely visual. It just brings back memories of being in Nashville on a freezing cold day when the when the wind was, in fact, howling down the Cumberland. And it just came into my head from nowhere. It's not a song that I would have played an awful lot of times before that, but I have since, just because it, it reminds me of you know good times and being able to put some images and pictures of real places to some of the songs, not just by John Hyatt, but by obviously other artists who uh, where Nashville is an important an important backdrop. Yeah, no, it's just like that was just a really cool juxtaposition to find myself standing there on the banks of the Cumberland. We were further up out in the country a bit, and then of course into Nashville itself. So and, and there's some good imagery about the stars and all the you know being in the the valley and the wind sweeping down and probably calls out to the Scottish person and me, you know, the the nice in the freezing cold. <laughs> you're you're uh, Scottish. I never yes. would know. <laughs> <laughs> News to me. Mm. You probably picked that up. Some people say Irish. I'll take that over English. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, Howling Down to Cumberland's a great one. It's funny, the Master Disaster album is one that I have to admit when it came out, I was kind of underwhelmed in it uh, with it at first. But doggone that thing's sneaky. It, it, it's Jim Dickinson's production or his, his kids playing on it and, and recorded it in Memphis at Arden Studios. And the more I listened to it over the years, the better it got. And doggone if it hadn't become one of my favorite latter day albums, you know. I got to say, I'm a huge fan of uh, Luther and Cody. They brought the North Mississippi All-Stars to Australia and what a bunch of diverse musicians you know I think it was um, Cody behind the drum kit he had a piano on his right side like near the ride cymbal and I'm thinking why is there a piano there and then the show off he's playing drums with a left hand better than a lot of people play with both hands and playing the piano at the same time and then he comes out and plays guitar someone else goes behind the drum kit and I thought you bastards you're good at everything absolutely amazing musicians so it was great to know that the Dickinson Clan got on board to a hired album. It may look like they're showing off, but I think they were just saving money. So <laughs> <laughs> and having having fun at it. So that's right. Yeah. <laughs> what are your two songs, Morris? Are you gonna uh, yes, let us I, know what those are? Yes, I, I certainly will. The first of my two songs, which just absolutely hit me emotionally the first time I heard it, was from the first album of Heights that I got into, the album Stolen Moments. So the song was Through Your Hands. What you are not doing Because your voice Cannot command In time 
And I think I posted on the Facebook group last week that I didn't realize Joan Baez had gone and done a cover of it. I know that one of the listeners had said, eh, it leaves me a little bit cold. And I think she's doing it robotically. And I don't think anyone, whatever, whether you like Baez or not, I don't think you could ever say that she did anything robotically. But no, um, I wouldn't do that either. <laughs> uh, I love that it's a duet. And it sort of seems like it's a sort of song which you would imagine would come later in someone's career, although, mind you, he'd been already recording for 10 years. But it's a song about not feeling confidence in yourself. And the second singer is saying, well, have a little faith in yourself. That line, you ask, what am I not doing? Who out there has never gone and asked that question to themselves? I mean, it's it's melodically gorgeous and a little bit of slide guitar in there just adds some beautiful texture to it. Like you guys, it's probably hard to narrow this down to a couple of songs, but you know, this is just supposed to be like an hour, hour and a bit podcast. So we can't go through everything, but that's a song I think even if I was to do this again on another day, that's the song I would say. Yeah, that's that's a definite Hyatt highlight for me. I would uh, I would agree, and that's a very good choice. And I think Don was was telling me he pitched that to David Crosby, and I love Crosby's version on the album he did for him, uh, A Thousand Roads, I think it was. But it's one of my favorite versions of it. Was was Crosby's was said the reason he pitched it to him was because it was such a pivotal song for him in his career at the time because he was. So uh, before Bonnie Raitt came along, uh, before he produced Nick of Time, he was in a really dark place. And he said that was one of the songs that he heard just in demo version. And he was sitting on the beach when he heard it and he started crying. It gave him the confidence to just start going again. I can see where it would. So it's it's a very special tune. Yeah, very special. The other song that I wanted to highlight, I, I sort of went back and forth between a couple of songs for this. And originally, I wanted to sort of have a few things to say about something wild, but I found myself listening last week to The Tiki Bar Is Open, which is for me probably the last Hyatt album that I absolutely revered top to bottom. Everything else from there that I've heard, I like, but Tiki Bar Is Open to me is like a masterpiece. I really, really adore that. And the closing song of that album, Father Stars, is so wonderful to me for a whole bunch of reasons. eight and a half minutes with a three and a half minute coda that is basically a drone. It sort of sounds like he was listening to Revolver by the Beatles, listening to Tomorrow Never Knows. It's his riff on it. Uh, I love that Nico Bolas is the engineer on this album. I associate his name with the late 80s, early 90s Neil Young albums. And I'm pretty sure it's him who's responsible for the explosive sound on those albums. That's probably why this album sounds so explosive. It's just really, really fresh. This song sounds like it belongs on the soundtrack of Easy Rider. Uh, (laughs) Now, I think I read something sometime that said that this was an ode to his late sister-in-law. Is that correct? I don't I don't have verification of that, but I mean I, I think I've heard that before too, but I didn't I, I didn't speak to him about that specifically, but possible. But musically in any event this song 
sounds like nothing else on the album, certainly nothing else in his career. And I just love the fact that he chose to do something like Hyatt does psychedelia. And geez, I'd (laughs) love to see him do a whole album in that style. But man, that is an incredible way to close off that album. It's three and a half minutes of guitar feedback at the end while the band's just riffing on that drone. I wouldn't cut a second of it. In fact, I'd probably like to hear it go for another 10 minutes. It's great. Right. It's it's definitely an outlier and a mood setter and all that. And I think the closest thing we could probably put with that is Mile High that closes Walk On. That's another epic length or just just weird. It's kind of like that one reminds me of the Flamingos, Only Have Eyes For You era, you know, the 50s, kind of creepy, haunting, late night doo-wop stuff. I think that's what he was going for with Mile High. But yeah, that Farthest Stars, I just love that. And Tiki Bar was a great moment. And I saw him, we got to see him a couple of times on this tour and he's playing uh, a few tunes off of Tiki. He's doing Everybody Got Low, Everybody went low in um, the title track. I think he's playing my old friend in a couple of places, but you know, he's he's not pulling that one out, unfortunately. Yeah, damn shame. I, I, I'd be interested to see um, whether he could pull that out with just him and a guitar. I mean, look, he's only been here twice. I only got to see him on the second tour. It was just him and a guitar and I was thinking, geez, I'd like to see a band. But when he's on stage by himself, I thought, man, he is a band. He is an yeah, absolute is. force of nature, but I'd be interested to see whether he could pull that song off, uh, just him and a guitar. <laughs> well, He's touring with the Goners right now. So the band that did that album is, uh, you know, Sonny Landreth is with him, still smoking. So great stuff. Can you send him an email and say, hey, please, can you consider Australia again? It's been like about, what, 15, 20 years since he was last here, Jeff, wasn't it? Oh, I don't know if it's that long, but it's certainly been a certainly been a while. I saw him at the Connor Hotel in Richmond with a band. Was that the tour that he was here with Robert Cray? Uh, no, he was just on his own, just as him and his combo. I thought he'd only been here twice, you know, the, the first time on the Robert Cray tour and the second time we was just here by himself. I don't even remember what album was out at the time. It was maybe about 2006, 2007, something like that. Definitely later than that. But I did have the good fortune to see him in his solo show in Atlanta when we were over. And I don't know how we did it, but it was one of these places where they have, you know, you can have a, you have a sit down dinner in front of the stage before the act comes on. And uh, we did it, but we pulled the table right in front and center, right underneath him. And the effort that he was putting into the show was just astonishing. I don't think Kate had seen him before. Kate, my wife had seen him before then. She'd heard me playing the songs, obviously. And, you know, she walked out thinking that was astonishing. Astonishing was the word lots of people were using. The, yeah, the, just the range and the variety and the heartfelt connection. It was it was just awesome. My wife saw him first when uh, he was doing acoustic stuff. Uh, it was just him and his guitar. So she was very impressed with that. And then she got to see him full band just this tour. So according to my information here, he last played Australia in 2012. How did I miss that? I'm trying to think if that was the tour that I saw him on. I don't know. Uh, we played Byron Bay Blues Fest yep. in 2012. Yep. And then he played in Melbourne at 2008. Okay. So 2012, I don't know if he did any side shows. I certainly don't remember that. But Or, or maybe he didn't. Jeff, you went and didn't tell me about it, you bastard. <laughs> this isn't the gospel, but that's what uh, that's, uh, that's all I can see right here. Oh, uh, the internet never lies, Michael. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said that. <laughs> <laughs>
nights ago. I don't know whether either of you have seen this or planning to go see it, but I went to see the new documentary about David Bowie, Moon Age Daydream. I would like to see that in IMAX, yeah. It's a great documentary for anyone out there who wants to see it. They don't use the talking heads path, which so many documentaries do. And I don't have a problem with that to an extent, as long as they're peers of the artist under question. But given Bowie being the sort of performer, his music could go in so many directions. He was chaotic. Uh, Everything about his life was experimental. It just talking heads wouldn't have worked for that type of documentary. But one particular thing that I got out of the documentary was that Bowie was And certainly from a certain point onwards anyway, he was not the sort of artist who felt he needed to be tortured to produce great art. Mm -hmm. And it sort of hit me after coming out of that film that that is exactly what the case is with John Hyatt. I mean, he spent the first 10 years of his recording career trying to find his way. And there was a lot of shit that was going on in his life. Some of it self-imposed, some of it memories from his childhood that played havoc with him. And then once he decided he was going to go clean and just make these great albums, but he, he's, he's not tortured. He's quite happy writing out on the road and he's married to this woman who he's very close, very in love with. They've been married for many, many years and he's not tortured. I don't think I could find many things common musically between Bowie and Hype, but certainly it seems to me, based on your book, that he's someone who took greater inspiration from being happy in life in his art. Would you say, is that the case? I'm glad you brought that up because I think that one of the things I definitely wanted to get across in this book was that you don't have to suffer for your art. He didn't become acclaimed and revered as a brilliant artist that we know now until after he cleaned up. I wanted to make sure that resonated. You know, when he was struggling, when he was on the the booze of the drugs and all that stuff, you know, so many artists are saying, well, that's when I did my best work or fans will say that's when they did their best work. But no, John did his best work, arguably, some may say, but I I think most of us would agree after he cleaned up and found what he wanted to sing about was universal because it was so personal. And people want to see somebody succeed. They want to see acts of resilience uh, pay off. And and that's exactly what would happen with high throughout his career as far as ties to bowie you know there's tony visconti so um, oh yes okay there's there and as a matter of fact they used the same when when uh they did i believe it was station to station or maybe it was the the cat people album they they used the same equipment on all of a sudden so there you go there's a link (laughs) (laughs) love that album bringing the knowledge (laughs) the contentious album it seems in his career people and the band themselves seem fairly ambivalent about it is uh uh, little village, the. Uh, um, the <laughs> I thought you were going to say little head, but okay. <laughs> well, I actually posted something in the Facebook group last week saying that we're going to discuss that the two littles, little head and little village, uh, <laughs> are not the disasters that people point out. In fact, I love the little village album. I'm glad to see that a lot of people have said that live they were absolutely amazing. I know that people have some issues with the little village album saying it's, you know, Hyatt songs are not necessarily up to the best standard that he had shown on the previous few albums and having Nick Lowe and Rai Kuda throw in a couple of afterthought type of songs. But I completely disagree. I mean, maybe it's because it's that magic combination of Hyatt, Keltner, 
low in CUDA. I don't think that there's been a combination. And this is no disrespect to the Goners or any other band that he's worked with. But for me, I always thought that there was just something so magical. And maybe it's just because I bowed down at the church of Jim Keltner. I, I just worship one of my very, very favorite drummers and there's something magical about it. But I love that record so much. I want to ask you two gents, where do you stand on it? And where do you think the contention is? I mean, I, I, there's got to be other people like me who think it's a terrific album it's a hard one to say i mean i don't know why it comes up being slightly less than the sum of its parts i do like the album i like a lot of the songs on there do you want my job is one that frequently comes to mind generally between the hours of nine to five um (laughs) the the live show was great it was really it was really really fantastic picked this up from reading michael's book about how it was a very democratically kind of built album you know there was no one was in charge you know it wasn't John Hyatt and the band or Nick Lowe and his band it it maybe suffered a little from the lack of a leader I don't know I mean I wasn't at the recording sessions obviously but it was almost like they were all too frightened to say actually no that's not very good they just put it on it you know they just went with it to see where it would go and there's always going to be contentious albums but I mean with someone with the track record of John Hyatt he probably looks back and thinks yeah we could probably have done better there but you know it's what it is Hyatt looks at it as kind of he says that's our that's my pop album that's my most pop album he likes the album for what it was Low, I kind of side with Nick Lowe on that he I think the whole thing comes down to the fact they had too much time and too much money. When you look at Bring the Family, they had four days. They had a like a, a, a shoestring budget, and they only had four days to record it. Look what they came out with, you know. Mm. Of course, they, they were all John's songs, but they had all the time in the world, and they had all the money in the world because said 1991 and 92, Warner Brothers, Reprise, all the, uh, the major labels were throwing money at artists. I think true, great creativity blossoms when you have a tight constraints around and, and you have to create within those constraints. I think that when you just, if you start with a blank paper and anything's possible, you know, you don't really, you can say, well, I'll get to it later. You know, <laughs> yeah, I believe that within limitations comes true creativity. Sometimes I listen to that album and it's got some great moments and I really enjoy them. Sometimes I'm, uh, I'm like, eh, you know, <laughs> but I still really like, you know, do you want my job? I still love Big Love. I think that's one of the great songs in Hyatt's career. Solar Sex Panel is fun. I'm not a big fan of, uh, and I love uh, Fool Who Knows. I'm not a big fan of Take Another Look. You know, I don't know what happened there, <laughs> but it's it's all in all, it's just fun. It's quirky. It's just a little quirky album. If Bring the Family hadn't come out first, that probably would be given a lot more accolades than probably. Probably it, it, it would have gotten otherwise. I think if they would have just stuck with Hyatt's songs, not to say anything against Cooter or Lowe, but I mean, Jeff said it right. I think they, if they had a leader guiding them, they probably would have done a better job there. I wanted to sort of just ask you a little bit about what John Hyatt's relationship with rock critics is. I mean, we hear like a lot of uh, artists saying, oh, I don't give a damn about what the professionally paid rock critics are. And uh, there was an interesting point that I think you mentioned in your book 
about the grumpy old man of rock critics, Robert Criscow, the man who likes nothing. He does say, Tony Visconti has dehumanized Hyatt's uncommercial voice with filters that make him sound like a Hoosier Steve Strange. And he gave that album a B. But then he goes on to rate Bring the Family as B minus. I mean, I've learned a lot over the years. I I read Robert Criscow more for the amusement rather than to actually take anything that he says seriously. And if you're listening to this, Robert, yeah, go on, give this podcast an E minus. I don't care. But given that, you know, uh, John Hyatt, we know he's almost deified in songwriter circles, but how does John, did he ever talk with you about saying, geez, this critic continuously rips me to shreds? Has it ever gotten to him or does he not give a shit? No, I don't. I don't think he gives a shit. I think that uh, when it comes to critics, he just lets it roll off his back. Now, in the early days, I'm sure it was probably worrisome a little more for, I, probably that all of a sudden that, that Chris Gow review probably hurt him more than the Bring the Family review probably because he was, it was earlier in his career. I will say that there, I've talked to one fella who interviewed Hyatt at one point. It was a journalist and he said he told me that um after it was over, Hyatt said, did I do okay? Did I, did I answer all your questions right? And he was just really, he was wanting to please. If that was early on in his career. That was probably the the early 80s. Probably around, around the time of all of a sudden, I think it was, 81, 82. I think where his issue came was, was record companies. I think he really had a hard time with record companies promoting his stuff. A career like his could never, ever happen now. He started on a major label, Epic Records, and then he moved to another major label, then another major label and that would never have you would never given be given those many chances on a major now you'd be going to a a tiny little label if you start there and if you were lucky you'd maybe make it up to a major after a while but so yeah he but but the problem was once he got on these majors they didn't put the money behind him or the promotion behind the push behind him and as uh, i was talking with greg geller uh with epic who was talking about clive davis you know it was it was really interesting to say, okay, Clive would get a big name uh, and that big name would make all the money and that money would fund the smaller name. But the marketing push would go behind the big name. They would only have the budget to market that one name, a big name for the month. And so if your record came out in that month, you were out of luck because it wasn't going to get the promotional push that say, uh, 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 I don't know who was on, well, Columbia, uh, Paul Simon or Bob Dylan was going to get. Not that they needed the promotion, but but hey, John, who was under Sony, uh, well, well, uh, under that banner at the same time, didn't get the push that the others got. And the same thing went with Geffen and all that. When he got to Geffen Records, David Geffen wanted Visconti because he wanted to, to produce it because he wanted a hit. Well, you know, Visconti pulled out all the stops and did everything he knew to do. But at the same time, they didn't promote the record like they should. And that happened throughout his career up until everything just kind of happened after Bring the Family. It started... It was because of his the quality of his music, really. The songs started getting better. People started wanting to record his songs. So, you know, you put your own effort into it and things will turn around. And I think that's that's probably the secret. Perfectly Good Guitar ended up becoming a top 40 album after all that work. That happened six years or so after Bring the Family. So I remember hearing on Top 40 Radio here, I don't think they'd played anything else before that, but I remember them playing Cry Love on Top 40 Radio here with which was a 
astounding to me. I thought you've paid no attention to this point. Why this song? That was well. That was probably on the momentum of the perfectly good guitar success uh, because they came out a couple of years after that. It had that forward momentum, and of course, he moved over to Capitol, another major label. So, <laughs> uh, he didn't get on an indie quote unquote until um, you know the 21st century. Where do you consider Vanguard? I mean, Vanguard's not one of the big labels, but it's no, it's but it has not. a long a history. Very, uh, yes, very very legendary. It's uh, I guess one would call it a boutique label now, but I mean, at the time, he, you know, one of his first inspirations when he got to Nashville was Bob Frank and Bob Frank was on Vanguard at the time. And, and he noticed that he was like, Ooh, Vanguard, the old folk music, jazz music, Mecca. Uh, he ended up on it finally in 2000 with crossing muddy waters that ended up getting pushed over to, to new West eventually who has to has them now. You've already gone and mentioned there, Michael, about it took till bring the family before a lot of people sort of started paying attention, but there were artists, there were musicians who respected him as a songwriter and his great song craft before that. So just wanted to ask you, gents, not necessarily a favorite, just a first, I wouldn't necessarily even say cover because he wrote for other artists songs that he never did himself. But what's a song that is in his catalog that someone else did that you really love their interpretation? Jeff? Oh, uh, Put it on the spot. Yeah, really on the spot. We'll come back to you. Michael, is there a... Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask this question like it's not been asked. Hey, Michael, I have a question that just occurred to me. What's a John Hyatt cover or interpretation, if it was something that he wrote for someone else, that you really, really love? Well, I'm sitting here trying to think. That's a very good question. And sure I- as you're sitting there? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff okay. and I do this sort of shit all the time <laughs> There are so many But one that just popped in my mind And I'll just use that one Since it popped in my mind first Speaking of Bonnie Raitt It would be uh, Lover's Will uh, I love her take on that Who'll hurt each other all the time And never give it a thought Who'll lie about where they've been Hope they never get caught Who say each other's kisses No longer thrill Lovers will That was probably the third cover she did of Hyatt. And it was on um, her album, Fundamentalist. It was a little later in the 90s, probably 98, I guess. John's version on Riding with the King was more of a a Southern soul. It was kind of a mid-tempo thing. She slowed it down and did a real slow, bluesy, soul-drenched thing. It's captivating. It's one of those things where you just can't, you got to stop what you're doing when you hear it, you know? And I, I love the way, I love her phrasing. I love her phrasing on anything, but I love her phrasing on that and the love the way she reimagined that piece. So that would be my pick. I'm going to nominate a song, which I'm sure is no one's favorite interpretation, but I'm a sentimental old fool is uh, Jeff Healy's interpretation of uh, Angel Eyes, which I think he did that first. He did that before Hyatt. Has a Hyatt I don't even know if Hyatt's ever officially recorded. He might have, he's done it live, but I don't think he's ever officially recorded it.
recorded a version on their great his his best of album in '98. He did it with Emmerich Luck, and I believe he did it with Ian McCloggan on piano. So wow, um, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a pretty cool version. But yeah, I I do like Jeff Healy's version, and that's one of those that I didn't know was a Hyatt song until a few years after that. I was like, whoa, wait, he wrote that, so that was cool. I like Jeff Healy's version, and he also did a Confidence Man on that same album. Another, I forgot that's that true. Time. Yes, yes, that's a okay. I'll, I'll switch to that one. Uh, no, but yeah, they're both JHs. So maybe they have yeah. Simpatico, I don't know. But I'll just go back to Icy Blue Heart again with uh, Amy Lou Harris. She came on to him like a slow-moving cold front. His beer was warmer than the look in her eyes. She sat on the stool and said, what do you want? She said, okay. for, for, for the same reasons and the beautiful voice. Emmy Lou Harris can sing anything and make it wonderful. In fact, I'd be so bold as to say she can probably sing anything and make it better than the original that uh, I think was it Steve Earle is on the record as saying that after Emmy Lou recorded his version of Goodbye, that he said, right, that song's hers. I can't touch it. Forget it. She's, I can't right. do it half as well as her. But Absolutely. Mm, gorgeous interpretation. It's been great to meet another John Hyatt fan. And because, you know, growing up in Scotland, I thought me and Dave were the only two John Hyatt fans in the entire country. <laughs> you know, until you go to a show and there's all these people who are just as, just as daft as yourself. But it's, you know, it's great to meet. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading the book. I just wanted to ask Michael, who's next? Well, after talking to you, I'm thinking maybe Frankie Miller. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've always loved him. He's a he's a Glasgow guy. I'm a big fan of his music, but I I really don't know. I've got a couple of irons in the fire and some stuff I don't really want to disclose yet, but I think I'm working on some stuff. So we'll see. <laughs> feel feel free to come back to us to give us the exclusive. We'll uh, we'll have to take you. Uh, the book is a really really wonderful read. It's great that we get through the first half, the story of a man who we know is going to make it, but he has to go through a lot of grief to get there. And on the second half of the book, he's the working musician and he's trying different things. He's found his niche, found what he loved doing. And it's it's just yeah, a long, happy ending, I guess, as it, as it will. But it's, it's good for people to be able to read this and see what are the origins of your favorite album. Or here's a story about an album that you maybe haven't caught on to because the whole 21st century thing with New West Records, there's some stuff in there which people may have not caught on to. I mean, there's, there's a couple of albums in there which were not necessarily for me, but I remember like a few years ago where Jeff said to me, have you listened to Dirty Jeans and Mudslide Hymns yet? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, get onto that. And I did and found, yeah, yeah, this is great. This is great. Yes, it's one of his best uh, Latter-day albums. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, um, I still haven't got around to watching this new documentary about the making of the latest album with Jerry Douglas. That's um, that's something. That's I a good think. one. It, well, uh, hopefully it'll make its way down there. I think they're looking for distribution right in this second, but oh, we've got great. a screening. And, and yeah, it's, it's great. But thank you all for having me on, man. That's, it's, it's been a pleasure. People out there, you can buy it as a virtual book. Uh, if you have a Kindle, you can buy it as a real book. 
Now, you've only just released it as a paperback in the last month or so, haven't you? Yeah. If you want a book, you'd rather have a book you can fit, you can uh, bend and put in your back pocket. That's fine. Uh, it's on paperback now. You can find out all about it and where to buy it at uh, michael-elliot.com. That's with E-L-L-I-O-T-T. It's a bit of Scotland in there. My dad's name was Larston, by the way. So there you go. That's uh, I'm Scots-Irish, so it's a little bit of both in me. Bless heart. That's why I don't drink anymore. But <laughs> um, but yeah, it's michael-elliot.com. And uh, of course, you can buy it anywhere you buy books. I mean, you just ask for Have a Little Faith, John Hyatt story, and they can order it for you if they don't have it in there. It's an audio book as well. Wow. Uh, John reading it? No. Uh, okay. No. It, <laughs> that would have been weird because he would have had to change it. In the third, third person. person. Yeah. <laughs> but I did... I did <laughs> I read the introduction, and my wife produced the uh, introduction, as a matter of fact. Tantor Media commissioned that, so uh, had a guy, uh, A.T. Chandler, right? Thank you. A.T. Chandler does the narration for that. I'll put links up to uh, your website and anywhere else that's relevant for where people can go and uh, get this John Hyatt goodness. Once again, yeah, thank you very much for your time. been very gracious. Much appreciated, Michael. All right, anytime. All right, well, uh, anyway, we'll be back in a moment. Jeff and I will sign off, and I'll talk about what is coming up in next month's episode of Love That Album. And we're back. Huge thanks to Michael Elliott for his very generous time and he really came up with some fantastic conversation there, don't you think, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. It was uh, really interesting to listen to him and a uh, really interesting book as well. I uh, always like to look out for books about the, the musicians and the groups that I am you know, a big fan of. And there have been nothing about John Hyatt for such a long time. And I think he's done a wonderful job. And it was fascinating to hear him tell the story about how that was originally supposed to be a 33 and a third book. Hmm. And uh, those people, they don't know what they're talking about. I often wonder what it takes to actually get to be a 33 and a third author. I'd love to know what it is that they look for, what their criteria is, but that's a conversation maybe for another time. So it turned out probably for the better. He got to speak to John himself and a whole lot of other people in John's inner circle to talk about John's life. And we got this wonderful book, but I don't know, maybe that could be a follow-up, bring the family track by track in a book. Of course, we'd be happy to assist him. Oh yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd help him in any way we could. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Bring, bring Dave along because we're the experts. And Dave. Dave in Ireland, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, huge thanks to you, Jeff, for coming back. Uh, I, my apologies for it being so long. As I said to you before we started recording this, doing only one show a month means that I can promise someone that they'll be on the show and then two years later, I say, well, you know, here you are. It's always a pleasure, always an honour to be involved in uh, the number one music discussion podcast. Other music podcasts, have you heard that? I didn't even pay him to say that. Um, <laughs> any, But uh, no, as I said, I think I'd like to get you back on next year for an album discussion that is not John Hyatt or Bruce Springsteen or really anything Americana. We'll work on something. So um, I'm sure we can find something in our... Uh 
in the Venn diagram intersection of our tests. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about what's happening for episode 161 of Love That Album podcast. Next month, we'll also see the return of a co-host who has not been on the show in a long time. In fact, I don't even think this guy has been on the program since maybe the first 20 or 30 podcasts or something like that. Uh, his name is Charlie Mahoney. He's the co-host of the Stinking Paws podcast. That's spelled P-A-U-S-E. Fantastic film discussion podcast. There's a, bit, a little bit of an empire going on there. They have quite a few film discussion shows, but Charlie is on the flagship show Stinking Paws and occasionally on Real Britannia, where they discuss, as you might guess, British films. So next month, knowing that Charlie is something of a Who fan, but I thought, well, we've already gone and done a couple of Who albums on this podcast. Uh, well, maybe it's only just one. I don't remember. I know that Charlie is a huge fan of Pete Townsend. So we're going to look at the album that Pete released in 1985 called White City, a novel. Now, at the time, he also released a videotape, which was basically a short film, something like 50 minutes that was a story based on this music or maybe the music was written to incorporate into the film. I don't know. Now, I'll confess right now that the film, as I saw it in the 80s, did not do a lot for me back then. So I'm looking forward to a rewatch and seeing if I get it now. But if any of you out there remember the music, certainly the music will give us plenty to talk about. But we will also be delving into uh, the film that Pete Townsend made and ask, was it self-indulgent? Was it great and self-indulgent? Who knows? We'll find out next month. I'd be very interested to see what Charlie has to say, and I'll be interested in giving it another watch and seeing if my thoughts have changed in 36, 37 years or whenever it was that I last watched it. So there you go. Charlie Mahoney off the Stinking Paws podcast, joining me to talk about Pete Townsend's White City, a novel. It's not a novel. It's a record and a movie, but he calls it a novel. There you go. Don't argue with Pete. Otherwise, you might end up with a smash guitar around your cop. So with that done, once again, thanks very much, Jeff. As always, Maros. And I'll be speaking to all your listeners again next month. Look after yourselves. Be nice to each other. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 